0: the following program is a podcast one.com production he's a world champion wrestler best-selling author actor and lead singer of fozzy now now he's rocking the podcast world Yay! This, this this is talk is jericho talk is jericho starring chris jericho
1: welcome to talk is jericho i am your host chris jericho welcome to the show Jay Worldwide, how are you doing? Thank you so much for listening this week. We got Bret Hart, second part of the Bret Hart interview. It's funny, though, because when I called him, he said he only had 60 minutes, but we were talking so well that I didn't tell him that we were going to do it for two shows. I was trying to keep him on the line. It was like... When you see one of those spy shows, when you have somebody on that you're trying to tap the line and find out where they are, and you go, just keep them on the line as long as you can. That's what I was trying to do. So Brett, I got two great shows with them. Had a little bit of feedback issue. Uh, I think there was something wrong with the phone line, but bear with me. It's still a great, a great, great, great uh, a, a episode. And it's like uh, working at a bell factory. After a while, you don't even hear the bell ring anymore. So if you have a little feedback issues, I know about it. I'm sorry. Happens sometimes. Didn't want to cut off the greatest, one of the greatest world champions ever and tell him, ask him if he had a landline, uh, although maybe I should have. See, that's the things I can learn here on Talk is Jericho. But you're going to love the show, anyways. Last week we talked about so much great stuff. We talked about his dad, Stu Hart. Didn't actually do the imitation of Stu Hart, but it was like, you're kind of, uh, you're kind of uh, uh, big guy, 250. Uh, So that's kind of what Stu's voice was kind of like that. Uh, Great guy. Very influential. Amazing, amazing uh, promoter. And what a character. One of the greatest, most reviled characters in pro wrestling history. Had to have him back, though. Wanted to talk more about his WWE time. Talk about his WCW time, which he does not pull any punches. I believe the word he uses is that Eric Bischoff is an idiot. (laughs) but if you haven't checked out the first part of our conversation download it at podcastone.com click on Talk is Jericho or you can go to iTunes and subscribe to Talk is Jericho then it's just delivered to your iPhone or whatever you listen to this show on every week doesn't get much easier than that also if you have a question hit me up at Talk is Jericho throw a hashtag on that TIJ questions and I'll answer anything you want Later on in the show. All right, got a little spoiler alert for you. Talking about Sons of Anarchy season finale. Okay? It's a spoiler alert. I got people mad at me because I gave away the the finish for Dexter on The Nerdist a few uh, months ago. Listen, if you haven't watched the show yet, it was two months ago. You can't be going out in public or listening to pop culture podcasts if you haven't watched the finish of some of these shows. You know I like them. So this is a spoiler alert. I'm now going to reveal what happened. Final scene. Unbelievable. Gemma murders Tara in cold blood. I couldn't believe it. I was freaking out. Now, it's funny because they see each other in the kitchen. They go face to face and it's kind of like this, this standoff. And then bang, they both like both run at each other. And then Gemma just starts kicking Tara's ass. I'm like, okay, Tara's going to make a total comeback here, but she doesn't. Because then Gemma just, like, she boots her in the stomach and then throws her in, like, this sink filled with water and is drowning. And they're like, okay, now she's going to do something. Then Gemma picks up, like, this two-pronged, I don't know, turkey cutter or something and starts stabbing her in the back of the head. Like, are you Oh, it was the worst. Like, are you kidding me? Just stabbing her in the back of the head and eventually kills her. Now, Sons of Anarchy is famous for having these very... Uh, gruesome, I guess you'd say, uh, type of uh, uh, scenes. They had one where a guy was getting the, 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 the tattoo on his back, the big what do you call it? the big uh, back piece, I guess. They burned it off with a blowtorch because he wasn't in the gang anymore, so he had to get rid of his tattoo. And then there was they the castrated the, the child molester or when Tig's daughter got set on fire right in front of him. Like, oh, just the worst stuff ever. But, but Tara getting stabbed in the back of the head, I mean, I can just feel it. It hurts right now. Just gouging with this... <laughs> and then Juice comes in and finds... Gemma over the body of Tara. Now, Juice had just been told by Jax that he's betrayed him and basically he's going to die. Jax is going to kill him. So, Juice is like, all right, I'm not going to help you out. I'm going to take care of this. And now, Gemma owes Juice huge. It might save his life. Then, Jax comes in, finds the dead body of his wife just gore everywhere, cradles her in his arms, and then the cops come and find him. Now, Jax was going to have to go to the police station to turn himself in to save his wife from going to jail. Now, his wife is dead, and the cops think he's the one who killed her. What is going to happen to Jax and all of the wacky cast of Sons of Anarchy? I don't know, but Sons, definitely one of my favorite shows. Rarely disappoints. There's only one bad season. I didn't like the Ireland season, if you guys have seen that. But now, Sons of Anarchy, one more season, and then it's done. Which, to me, is okay because, once again, like Dexter, like Breaking Bad, like Walking Dead, we're watching these shows because we know that it's not going to end well for these people. It's not going to be a good ending for any of these people. Now, The Walking Dead is a little different because they're good guys for the most part. But Dexter, Walter White, and Jax Teller are all criminals. I mean, sure, Jax is noble because he's getting away from gun running and drugs to just deal with prostitution. But seriously, if this guy moved in next door, you would run screaming, screaming, screaming from him. So you know it's not going to end well for old Jax Teller. It certainly didn't end well for Tara. She got stabbed in the back of the head. What a turkey pick, yo! I don't even know what a turkey pick is. (laughs) (laughs) you gotta love it I love the fact I can talk about all of this stuff here with you on Talk is Jericho alright Bret Hart is coming up the longest field goal ever attempted is 76
0: yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal it probably won't go well So, set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: All right, for the second week in a row, Bret Hart is here. On the show, very, very excited to have him. Last week, we talked all about Stampede Wrestling. We talked about the initial run with the Hart Foundation. And now we're back for the second week in a row. Bret Hart is here. Very excited to have him on. Uh, so we're talking about the about when you and Neidhart were together as the Hart Foundation. Uh, huge act. I mean, very, very popular. But you mentioned earlier that you went to Vince for years and, and told him that you wanted to become a top guy. When was the decision made and how was it made to kind of split you guys apart? And was there always a plan for you to, to get to that next level? Um, I mean, obviously, they gave you the chances for it. But did you think you would ever make it to becoming the world champion when you first split up with, with Neidhart?
2: No, I, I had never had any big grand plans. I, I was always working hard and always trying to climb the ladder, you know, and I, we got, you know, stuck together as a team and did really well as a team for six years. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed anything. We, we had some great, great matches and great chemistry and we, we drew some, I think drew some pretty good crowds. Like we helped, uh, contribute to the, to business at that time, which was, uh, roaring fire back then and you know we, we did our part and we were we were real happy with those six years and then i think you do climb the ladder and you do watch a lot of guys come in and take, other guys cut in front of you and sort of you keep waiting for somebody to throw you a bone and i was there six seven years and never got a bone really other than tag belts right and when we lost the tag belts which was we sort of knew was a sort of a limited thing that they promised me for about the third or the fourth time that they were going to give me a big push in singles by myself, and they were going to split us up. Uh-huh. And so I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm waiting for that. Just let me know when you're going to do that. And so then they took the bounce from us and said, okay, now we're going to make you a, a single guy. And they told me to come up with a submission hole. Eventually, I was the one I think, that came down myself, with put the, uh, the scorpion on or a version of it or whatever. And Right. Uh, Vince said, we'll call it, uh, I think Vince is the one that said he liked the, like the sharpshooter is a name. And we sat around and kind of just talked about it. But that's what we kind of have me in mind for a single push. And, uh, you know, because uh, sometimes you can read the writing on the wall. And uh, whenever they turned me babyface and kind of gave me a push, they usually pinned me. Like, I didn't go anywhere. Like, uh, my big push went nowhere. And I, right. I mostly just jobbed out for bad news and different guys or Dino Bravo. and And they throw me back in the tags and I never really got a push. And I think one of the the things that they felt about me at the time is that I couldn't do promos. Uh I probably, and I probably couldn't do great promo booth promos, but I was getting better with the experience that I was getting over the years. And I know that when, uh, Kurt, Kurt Henning won the, uh, intercontinental title at, uh, uh, in LA at WrestleMania seven. And, and they, um, came to me the next day and said, we're going to put you with Kurt. all oh, like, right, like, started right, right away. And I said, I don't want to work with Kurt. He just got the title. Uh huh. Why would I want to work with Kurt? And I said, we're going to put you to have great matches. And I said, you guys promised me a big push. I said, whoever works with Kurt's got to put them all.
3: Oh, right.
2: So you're going to give me a big push and stick me with Kurt and just have me drop out again. And then I, I, I missed the, I missed the chance, you know? And right. So you guys promised me a big push. You've been I need to get my hand raised the first time I go out this time rather than go out and get clobbered the first time I go out as your, as a baby babyface. I remember I stood my ground on it. I refused. I said, I don't want to work with Kurt. I'm not working with him. Uh-huh. And they were like, yeah, I remember Pat was like pleading with me. It's going to be great all summer. And I said, I just knew. I said, it's, it's the next guy that works with Kurt is going to get the title. I didn't tell him that. Yeah. I said, I know that whoever works with him in, around, by the time he gets to SummerSlam, they're going to They're going to switch things around, and ever the next guy to work with Kurt is going to be the guy that um, gets the title. Yeah, that's the guy to be, not not the first guy.
1: Interesting, yeah.
2: And so they end up switching things around, and they threw Davey in with Kurt. Bulldog got what he what he needed was was a push too at the time, and they gave him a push with Kurt. And about uh, June, they came up to me and said, "You're working with Kurt at SummerSlam." And uh, then they told me I was going over, ah. <laughs> and uh, and I kind of got the push. I think Kurt did a lot for me. Kurt went to bat for me, and uh, I think offered to put the belt on me. And thought, said I deserved it. Mm-hmm. In fact, Kurt uh, could have just—he uh, he had injured his back already, and could have just taken the—you uh, know—the injury thing had gone out, and uh, I don't think Vince would have had any problem with it. But he—he he, he, Kurt actually came back just to put me over. Or him telling me, I came back and I wanted to do that to you. Wow. You did it me. I helped put Kurt over, get him over when he uh, got
1: his first push. with him. You know, it's interesting when I was in WCW and there was such a quagmire of political BS. Kurt was the, was the one guy or one of the few that always worked hard with, with me and with the guys in my gang and always did his best to, to put us over and to help us out. And, you know, Kurt was that type of guy. You know, he, he definitely believed in, in, you know, I don't know if passing the torch is the right word, but of, of definitely passing the knowledge along and, and keeping and doing things for the good of the business rather than the good, good of himself.
2: Kurt was a guy that loved working. He loved the good work. He was not a guy afraid to go out there and you know, bust his ass for a small crowd or yeah. a, a, a small town, you know, where as long as he he liked to work with a good opponent, if somebody wanted to work, he liked, he was a good dance partner. Always,
1: I always thought Kurt was one of the safest guys I ever worked with. Safest?
2: You could lie there and let Kurt do anything. He never, he was always such a pro. He was one of the best, uh, safest guys I ever worked with.
1: You always had that reputation too, though, Brett. You never heard anybody from what I remember.
2: No, I never. I take great pride in that. I. I know I never hurt anybody. There's no wrestler that I ever worked with that didn't get get up the next day and work again. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with uh, being the best there is, best there was, best there will be. You know, it's kind of a big boast to make about yourself, but I I can sort of wear that banner proudly because I I never injured one guy. And uh, I wrestled 300 days a year for almost three years. So there's a lot of matches, a lot of bodies that lay there underneath my knee drops. (laughs) Yeah. Got a ma- lot of guys that took uh, my punches and stuff like that, but nobody ever got hurt.
1: You mentioned the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. Where did that come from, and did you think of that?
2: Uh, I, it came from the movie The Natural, Robert Redford. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I came up with it on a, on one of those uh, TNT shows Uh huh. back a long time ago with Vince. And I remember Vince, was one of those, I was really nervous, and I remember Vince asked me a question on the show, and I tried to be talky and kind of... Uh, you know, show that I could be on TV kind of thing. And I remember I said something about the Heart Foundation being the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. And I just remember it's like that's like my first I noted in my head as my first tagline.
3: Oh.
2: <laughs> and then we, me and Jim started using it for Heart Foundation back in the early early days. And then when I went single by myself I kinda just kept it and,
1: you know It became became a catchphrase for you. You know, it's interesting, too, you mentioned about how you, you got your initial push with the Intercontinental Championship. It's amazing how how belittled that title has become over the last 10 years or so. Back when you were there and when I was a big fan, the Intercontinental Championship was the second uh, most important guy in the entire company. I mean, you had basically Hogan and then whoever was the IC champ. You made that such an important belt to the point where you guys even headlined at Wembley Stadium you and Davy Boy Smith with that Intercontinental Championship. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, you know, I always thought the IC belt was kind of a, considered the the wrestling...
1: Yes, right, the worker's belt, yeah.
2: The worker's belt, yeah. And uh, the guys that had it were always good workers, for the most part. Always. Good, yeah. solid, hard-working guys that, like Tito and Greg Valentine and Pat Patterson. And, you know, so I... I, there was a great history behind that. Pedro Morales, I think, was another guy that, uh, really, uh, made that belt. I think Chief J. Strongbow and what. anyway, the belt always meant something. I always thought it did in, uh, in the New York territory, anyway. Sure. And, you know, I, I know that, um, for Bibli, I remember telling Vince in August, months, maybe even June or July, maybe July of that year. Um, I told him, I we, okay we should go on last. And he said, you think you can carry it? I said, I said, I don't think I want to be the match that goes on after us. They said, nobody, that one match will be able to follow us. Wow. And he goes, are you sure about that? And I said, I'm absolutely 100% positive. And, uh, he changed it, put me in, baby on top. Who,
1: who was, who was originally supposed to be on top? Who was the champion I at think the time?
2: Warrior and, uh, oh. Warrior and, uh, I'm thinking Macho Man, I think, wrestled.
1: Okay, yeah, because Warrior was probably the champion at that point.
2: And it was, uh, it was, you know, it was a good call. There's no way no way that any uh, anybody on that card could have topped that match that night.
1: Right. Well, especially, you know, Davey being the hometown or the home country hero, for sure.
2: You know, it was a funny thing, Chris, when you, I don't know how often you, in your life you, you, you can sort of, you can sense how things are going to go, and I, I was really over in uh, England and Germany back then. Like over, like super over, like, right? Way more than than I was in North America. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually was more over than Davy in in the UK. And oh, I do wow. it, yeah. and Davy was really over. Yeah, but I knew as soon as they put me against Davy, that the fans, all those fans that I had, they, they would have to sort of cool go with Davey. because it's a national pride thing. I just knew that going there and wrestling Davey, that people wouldn't really think about the match too much. Uh-huh. Bret Hart versus Davey. Until we actually got to the ring. And when suddenly you see Bret Hart and you go, geez, you know, Bret Hart never loses. He's Intercontinental Champion. He's, you know, I, I was over at that point and I know that they fully thought that I would win the match. But at the same time, they're going Bulldog wrestling in England. Bulldog's going to go over. And so, I think when, when fans see him and I looking each other in the eye at the beginning of the match, the first time they've really thought about it, it's they saw the, the billing, they're going, yeah, Bret Hart versus Bulldog, and it's like, wow, you know, right. who's going to win? They don't, there's a big question mark as to what the finish is going to be. And that's what I loved about that match at Wembley was, uh, it was, um, such a great, uh, story to tell. Two baby faces, one, you uh, know, and one being from England, and just that whole drama that uh, that we
1: told. I always think it was one of the most uh, powerful matches I ever had. Is it one of your favorites?
2: Oh yeah, for sure. I sometimes i i uh, I was always a stickler for details and stuff like that, and uh, I thought it was such a great match, and I was so proud of it when it was over. And uh, I remember telling Davey before the match, I said, Davey very end I, I'm going to make out like I'm going to throw like the Porsche sport kind of attitude and I'm going to stomp off back to the dressing room and I said no I won't shake your hand and uh, I refuse to shake your hand
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I said when I refuse to shake your hand and, and start to leave I said you're going to see I said I think we could make 90,000 people start crying if we milk the handshake right you know you just keep looking at me with the sad puppy dog eyes like just hey, uh, you know, I'm sorry to be chair. It was a good match. You know, shake my hand. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I'll keep making out I was like, I'm, I'm going to get mad, and I'll keep leaving, and finally I'll come back. And I said, when I, by the time I shake your hand, and come back and shake your hand, I said, we can make him cry. And I remember when we had that match and it was all over, I kept looking at Davy to build to, to the handshake, and he kept looking at the crowd and looking at Diana. And I kept looking you know, for God's sakes, just look at me. Yeah. (laughs) Look look me in the eye and and we'll we'll have everybody in this building, like in this arena, just ready to start crying.
3: Right.
2: You know, he he would never look me in the eye until I finally just walked over and hugged him and we never got that moment.
3: Oh. You know,
2: it's like one of those little details. It It was such a great match and, you know, it was such a great drama and, uh, it's the little detail
1: sometimes that can oh, make it that much better. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's that's the case. And, and it's interesting that you mention that because uh, I had uh, Steve Austin on, on my show a few months ago. And I, he, I asked him, what's your favorite match? And we talked about it. His favorite match was WrestleMania 13 versus Bret Hart. And the, the reason why I'd even brought that up in the first place was that, to me, was the best example of the crowd didn't know they wanted you as the heel and Steve as the baby face until you gave it to him it was the best double turn in the history of the business in my opinion
2: uh, you know you know what else was said uh, that I always look at is that it was so like the fans are like rabid dogs you know like they're just the violence is so when I look at UFC today and I go
1: People that watch UFC, they want the knockout, and they want that. Yeah, party. they want the car crash, NASCAR. They want, that, they want all that violence, and it's like
2: I look at WrestleMania 13, and it's like I gave you all that without, except for no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. You know? It's like, <laughs> you know, no faces were punched, and teeth knocked out, and black eyes, and you know, I'd much rather. I'm so much more proud of my career and my uh, my uh, my my accomplishments in my career in knowing that I was a pro wrestler and that I didn't have to make a living as a UFC fighter and where I had to really punch out my friends for real and meet up right. the people that, that are my friends and peers. And I, it seems to me that's a really tough, hard way to make a living. And, uh, you know, but when I want to watch WrestleMania 13 is that's the beauty of what pro wrestling is. People that are sort of uh, nonviolent pacifists and stuff. I think appreciate wrestling more because, you know, there's, there really, most of the time, there is no animals harmed in the making of the movies. And, uh, you know, the match with Steve Austin was such a brilliant story and a, you know, a great battle. And, uh, what I always love is the little details in that match. Like there's a part in that match where Steve Austin kicks me in the balls yeah. and I take the bump backwards. I just fall backwards, but it's just so real. Like yeah. it's just so intense, and so real that you go, I don't know, how I mean, when I watch it, I go, it's, it's some great, great stuff. And Steve was a great, great wrestler. I, I loved working with Steve, and uh, I've, I missed working with Steve after I left the company. I would have loved to have uh, played more of a part in his career.
1: In the Ascension. Wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It was almost because you left was one of the reasons why he grew. They had they had to build him quickly, and I think thirteen was was the perfect time for his turn. You obviously sensed it. The other great part of it too is when Shamrock pushed you and you didn't push him back. That was like such a pussy thing to do. You know, it was like such a great, great, great moment in, in in wrestling history for sure. I remember when I cocked my fist like I was going to drill. Him yeah, and I, you could fear the the whole building was about ready to come crashing down. It was uh, <laughs> such a rumble. It
2: wasn't supposed to be anything between him and me. I remember ben said, make sure, because they'll lose uh, sight of who you're working with. Like, right. If you do too much with Ken, it uh, takes away from what you did with Steve. So we yeah. just wanted to kind of lay a, plant a little seed that maybe if Shamrock wanted a piece of me, I could give him a piece of me kind of thing. It was great. I loved it.
1: How was it working, uh, one of your other programs that I loved that you did was the one where it was brother versus brother, you versus Owen. How was that working with him and kind of being one of the reasons uh, to, that Owen finally got his shot and finally got to show off his real talent was basically because he was working with you?
2: Well, you know, Owen was a really good wrestler from right from the start. I think yeah. much like me, he grew up watching it, and we both got established in wrestling pretty young. Like, uh, you know, I was working on top for my dad within two or three years in the business. And Olin was working on top for my dad within a few months of being in the business. And, you know, I, did, I worked hard trying to get Olin into WWE because I used to see a lot of guys, even in the in the late 80s, I used to see a lot of guys that were, you know, not like Olin was every bit as good as Sam Houston or Paul Roma or, you know, Jim yeah. Powers or any, there's lots of guys. It's like, I, you know, bring my brother Olin, bring my brother Olin. Right. So I was always always working on Owen's behalf and they did bring him in a couple of times but um they didn't really did much with him. I was the one that actually was the one that told Vince to bring him in and call him the mask gimmick named like Blue Blazer and Right. Sell his hoods like like Rey Mysterio does now. I so said we can, you would know, you make a fortune selling his mask you we make him a real cool character and Owen does all this
1: high flying
2: and all that stuff, but you know, Vince has so much other stuff going on at the time that they they shut the. They kind of killed the Olin when they brought him in. They brought him in just to be a bottom guy, kind of. Thing. Yeah. They bring him in to be a big high flyer star. And so Olin kind of died on the line, and he left. And I got him back again a few years, a year or two right. later. And, he, and they kind of did the same thing again with him. But didn't really. Give, I think Owen got hurt a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never quite got the big push. And you know, one of the strange things is that uh, Owen had come to me. Right around the time I had the SummerSlam with Goink and uh, Jerry Lawler, um, where I fought fought them both on the same pay-per-view at the SummerSlam. Right. It was on that same weekend, I think, that Owen had told me, because he was quitting the business, and he was going to become a a fireman. Okay. And he was just waiting for the uh, scores back on his uh, exam that he took to be a fireman, and... uh, I was, I felt bad. I go, geez, you know, Owen's a really good wrestler. And I remember talking to Vince at that time and Vince was telling me he was so short of talent he couldn't find any new fresh talent. He was having trouble finding new stars and stuff. And uh, I said, well, you're going to lose one that's going to quit because he, he just gave up on being here. And mm-hmm. I said, I think it's such a shame that you don't do something with Owen. He's he's quitting and become a fireman. And I said, I'm just saying that. And he goes we'll try to think of something for Owen and maybe we can talk him into Stan and I I remember we had a long talk about Owen and uh, it was the very uh, next week that they came up to me and said uh, we want to work a storyline where you wrestle your
1: brother Bruce. Wow. Originally it was Bruce?
2: Originally it was Bruce and uh, I go I don't think I can wrestle my brother Bruce A because he's (laughs) Uh, but B um, you know we I just I just do Bruce Bruce had just that knee surgery like big knee surgery. He hadn't wrestled in about five years. And before that, he couldn't wrestle very well anyway. Right. And it was really going to be a, a labor of love trying to, trying to work around my brother, Bruce, who had a pot belly and was about 40 years old. And it was just not going to work. But they were set on Bruce. And I remember I said to Vince after we talked about it, I said, I will not even consider doing it with my brother Bruce, but I'll, I'll consider doing it with my brother Owen. Oh, okay. I said, you probably, you know, came in here a week ago and asked you guys to think of something with him, and you come up with another idea for somebody else, you know, well, in my family, but the wrong one, you know. And uh, Right. You know, the truth is is that Bruce was injured and couldn't have done it anyway. And, you know, the part of this, the story that was, was uh, told to me is that they wanted my brother Bruce to come out and challenge me, much like Owen did a few months later, or a few weeks later. But Bruce keeps challenging me, and uh, I won't accept. I won't fight my brother, Bruce, until finally Owen comes out and goes, you know, Bruce, you've been a, a big mouth since all your life. Was, uh, and you've always been or whatever. Why don't you fight me? I'm the youngest in the family. So Owen would challenge Bruce and was going to, I think, work with him at Survivor Series or the Rumble or something like that. And then Bruce was going to mop the floor with Owen, and totally annihilate Owen and destroy Owen. And then I was going to come out, and I was going to be so angry at what he did to Owen that I go, "Okay, I accept the match now." And then me and Bruce would wrestle at WrestleMania. Wow! And, and that was originally what they had in mind. And I remember when I said Owen, I'll never go for it. And I remember called Owen, "This is what they had in mind." I said, "Bruce goes through you to get to me." Bruce, Owen told me, if I, "I'd quit. I would have quit. Yeah, I would have quit on the spot." And uh, you know, it just—it's uh, funny how things went. Owen and I, we never wrestled each other. We had one match somewhere early in, in a tag match somewhere. Uh-huh. Owen, uh huh. Owen, when we first set out to work at WrestleMania 10, you know, we didn't have any chances to work together. Owen was uh, primarily a babyface face a high flyer. He threw a lot of great stuff off top ropes and all this kind of high flying stuff. Right. I remember we kind of. I had a couple of test matches where we had tag matches. I think it was me and us. Uh, might have been me and Scott Hall against Owen and uh, Shawn Michaels or something like that. But we had a couple of matches. Where we got to tie different spots out, but we didn't really get to perfect anything other than certain moves and kind of get used to each other's style. And then we got to about two days before WrestleMania, and we kind of worked out a whole match. A really good match. I, I often wonder now like from a Visual standpoint, if you could watch the match with me and Owen, that originally planned out, it probably would have been a better match than what we had.
1: Really? Why is that?
2: Well, we just had all his all his high flying stuff. We gotcha. Had so many great uh, high flying, yeah, detailed, uh, complicated high spots out of uh, coming off the top, and a lot of great stuff that Owen hadn't had really had a chance to show people that he do. Yeah. And so we had it all down, and I remember I called Owen up on the Friday. I think we were leaving for. New York City on Saturday, and uh, I called Owen, I said, you better come up to the house, we got to talk, and uh, I realized in watching the the matches back, and remembering the reactions we got in the towns that we were working in, Owen would do some of this stuff, and the place would go crazy, it, it, would, it, it kept popping on stuff, and I said, Owen, you're turning heels, and we're going to do all the high-flying stuff, I said, by the end of the match, they'll be cheering, you like a baby face. Right you know, we got to be really careful with how we do this. You, you want to be a heel, you better be a heel, you know, and uh, we totally tossed out the match and put a different match together where Owen was much more vicious, much more devious, and, uh, you know, he was a real cutthroat, like, in the sense he did everything he possibly cheat to win, do everything from biting my fingers kicking me in the yeah. crotch. <laughs> you know, and, and it's what got him over. Owen had so much heat within a few months of, of WrestleMania, and it wasn't the right call. We had actually had a really good run. That was one of the first times WWE uh, did big business after WrestleMania. Usually there was a big drop in uh, business, but that was the, one of the first years that uh, business uh, stayed up because uh, I stayed on the road, and Owen was a red-hot heel.
1: Yeah, it was it was such a good match too it's funny because a lot of people talk about uh michaels and, and razor the, the latter match they had but for me the best match on that show was always Brett versus Owen and it kicked off the show and it was hard to follow it you talk about trying to follow a match like that it was it, the story was amazing it was kind of Owen's coronation it was it was a great moment for sure
2: yeah and it was really hard for two wrestlers that had never worked with each other in a fairly complicated storyline in that sense from a workers standpoint how to Bring out the best for the for the story of the match. The two guys that never worked with each other. I think WrestleMania 10 stands out as one of my greatest accomplishments, and you know, it's really hard to do. And 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 at the same time, still be over at the end of the night when I won the title, and yep. still have all went over as a red hot heel. And uh, it was a really um, well executed uh, storyline. Hey everybody, Steve Austin, coming to you from Podcast One Studios in Beverly
1: Hills, California. I got Rowdy Roddy Piper. Boom. love the bagpipes. And I used to play them like Jack Benny. Just total, actual torture to booming. They start booing. Don Owen stops me. He says, now, I can't play the bagpipes, and neither can you. Download it now at podcast1.com. You're listening to Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. We're here once again with Bret Hart. Let's talk quickly about your time in WCW. How was that for you? Um, it's interesting for me because I went the other way around. I went from WCW to the WWE, and for me, it was like The Wizard of Oz. And WCW was black and white, and then when I opened the door for the WWE, it was, it was a whole world of color, and uh, and and the whole landscape was different. How was it for you going reverse from the color into the black and white?
2: Um. Was I've always, I knew right away, and I knew it before I ever got there, that the only thing that WTW couldn't buy, that they couldn't attain, was somebody with any brains. It was. <laughs> you're a good guy to talk to, because you, you you know, and uh, you and me con- conferred with each other a lot in those days. But then talk about idiots running the, uh, the little bunch of morons. But Eric Bischoff was one of the most stupid, idiots I ever met in my whole life. i think back on it now and I look at what happened with the business and where it went and what the potential was of, of the industry at that time and wrestlers I've ran it. especially in WCW. There was so much talent. Was, yeah. uh, they were on par with WWE as far as talent. If anything, Vince had to, Vince had to rebuild and remold and reshape a lot of his characters to, ca- to catch up to WCW in, in 97. Yeah, it had so much talent from Ray Mysterio, and you were a talent, and Ben Wall was a talent, and Booker T was a talent, and Kurt Hamming and Macho Man, there was so much talent everywhere.
1: And that Eric
2: Bischoff was such an idiot. He couldn't do anything, and he couldn't stay. I just, I shake my head today, and I go, what a shame. What a nope. shame. All the millions of dollars, and all the, you know, where this business could be today, is great that Vince has got a monopoly, and... Controls every aspect of the business, and but I mean, the wrestlers today have no bargaining position. They got no leg to stand on. They take what you
1: can get, and that's it. It's interesting to me when you're talking about uh, you know Bischoff and the way he did things. I didn't understand what when you left the WWE, you were the hottest property in the business i mean the two biggest characters in the, in the business were you and vince and vince obviously took what happened and ran with it one way and when you came in right from the start it was almost like a burial how obviously you must have known that or felt that from when you first came in what do you th- what happened when you first came in were you promised something different from what they actually did with you well
2: you know what uh, i made mean, i i was so like when i left Company. I left WWE. I knocked out Vince McMahon. I had beaten The Undertaker at SummerSlam. I had cheated and basically never lost to Shawn Michaels at some series. I was. I couldn't have been more hot. I was. I had beaten everyone from Steve Austin had wrestled me at WrestleMania 13. I was. I was at the peak of my career. I had nothing but one good pay per view after another that year. I was as hot as I could ever be. And they brought me in, and they they killed me off. I think right off the bat, and that was that was that was Hulk Hogan um, killed me off automatic. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, and guys told me later on, and I've since, since figured out that Hogan put a knife in my back the second I got there and made sure that they never did anything with me. Just sat me on the bench the whole time I was there. I made I used to make thirty thousand dollars a week.
1: Thirty thousand dollars a week.
2: More than that. I think it was thirty three thousand dollars every week. Rain or shine. And I'd work I was most of the time I didn't even work. I, I was the most insane thing. They'd fly me Derek Bischoff would fly me down from Calgary all the way to somewhere. All like all the way across the country, I'd fly first class. I'd land. They'd have a luxury rental car for me. I'd stay at, the, at a five-star hotel. I'd get to the building. i wait around all afternoon talking to guys like you and Ben Law about how stupid things were there. And uh, <laughs> about 5.30, they come out and tell me that uh, I was off the cut, that they didn't meet me on the show. And I'm sitting there thinking, there's another day off my uh, 130 days or whatever. i got to work for these guys. But, I mean, it was always... I was always, I wanted to work, I I wanted to make a difference, I I saw lots of guys I could work with, I would go to Eric Bischoff every couple of days and go, how about put me with Booker T, or how about put me with Benoit, or how about stick me with Kurt Henning, and you know, Bischoff, most of the time, he he would uh, shoot down anything you brought to him, Yeah. and he'd give you the... Stupid grade one logic of someone that doesn't know anything about anything logic about, oh, we can't do that because uh, the sky's blue. and uh, <laughs> You know, it was always like I'd always walk out of his office and go, that is, isn't even a reason why not to do something. But he's, you know, he's so stupid and afraid of um, exposing that he's an idiot and that he doesn't know what he's doing. He, he reminded me of the guy on Wizard Oz behind the curtain, making all the noise, and <laughs> going on, but he didn't know anything. You know, I remember Vince McMahon talking to me um, before I ever left for the company, about a year before, he goes, WCW would never know what to do with a Bret Hart. Yeah. And, you know, it always echoed in my head, and I always knew I knew it, before, and, I, and I agree. And I never, ever did want to go there. I was actually kind of sad that I ever ended up there. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I I look at everything I did at WCW, was basically a sabotage from the time I got there to make sure I just didn't. Didn't do anything. Make sure that I, I, I went
1: nowhere. Well, it was so amazing because that was kind of the mo for the company. I mean, anybody that actually ever got over was just squashed. I mean, it happened to me. Eddie Guerrero was the hottest heel in the company about six months before you got there. They squashed him at one point. Kidman was a huge baby face. They squashed him. Like if you were able to 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 uh, squeak through the cracks and get over in spite. Of what was going on you'd get punished for it and buried I just never thought they would actually do that with you but th- like you said there were so many bosses there everybody had a target on their back and here comes Bret Hart from the WWE the, the hottest star in the business we have to squash him yeah you're like who would
2: take it like, I don't know I, Yeah,
1: I look, at, I look at say Ian Hulk Hogan could have done big money and, <laughs> absolutely like, right off the
2: bat they could have just brought me in the with Hulk Hogan you know right off the bat we could have done we could have huge
1: goodness Huge numbers. Hogan was a was the biggest heel at the time. You could have come in as the biggest baby face. I mean, that's just that's just money on the table.
2: And I you know, even when I left, like even when uh, before I got hurt, I can remember like like you remember when I wrestled Goldberg. Were you still in the company when I did that thing with Goldberg and the steel plate in Toronto?
1: Yeah, in Toronto, absolutely, yeah.
2: That was such a good idea. Yeah. Like you could explain that to someone in the dress room and it made really great Television set, we go. God, that would look so good. That'd be
1: so. And, and what great what it was for the, what it was for the people at home is that Goldberg was doing the spear and speared Brett and was knocked out, and Brett pulled up his his hockey jersey and had a steel plate uh, wrapped around his abdomen. And it
2: was such a it was such a brilliant little idea. And and Goldberg was indestructible at the time. That's I, right. It was so, I and mean, he came he came out of the dressing room. Everybody oh, my God, here he comes, Goldberg, Bret Hart. I was so over, so over. And uh, it was so great. And and it was such a great finish and such a great surprise at the end. If you only knew the backstory of how hard it was to get that idiot Eric Bischoff to go along with it, let me do it. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people say, that was the best thing you ever did in WCW. And it was the best thing I did in WCW. And it was probably the only thing that we did. And it was so hard
1: to do. Yeah, they got lucky, I think, with with kind of stumbling onto the whole NWO thing. And that's basically what took them to the next level. And I also, too, like you said, there was a lot of talent in WCW, uh, like our gang of guys. I think all of that contributed to to WCW's ascension, but it didn't take long for them to start hemorrhaging money because of the dumb decisions they made and and bringing you in and just basically doing nothing with you was was one of the biggest, I think, mistakes they made.
2: Well, you know, I, I, I'll say honestly that I remember I never had a chance to work really hard for that company. I, I wanted to work hard, and I never got much chance for good, but I do know that the guys that were working hard and gave that company the, uh, the reputation that they had for great wrestling were guys like you and Benoit and Eddie Guerrero and Ray Mysterio. They were the real workhorses. They were some guys that worked really, really hard and were great workers and hard workers and you know, they got their credit, and uh, yeah. until they left, you know, I can remember. You know, just WCW was such a chaotic mess of uh, bad ideas.
1: And- yeah. Well, like you said, it, it, there, there's no reason, there's no uh, mystery as to why they went out of business. But, you know, you mentioned you got kicked by Goldberg, and that was kind of the end of your career. You made amends with the WWE. How is it for you now with Vince in, in the WWE? You still work there from time to time, making appearances, etc. cetera? Uh,
2: it's good. I, I have a good rapport with them now, and I, I'm glad I came back. I uh, uh, forgave all that stuff with Sean and Vince. And, you know, I think it was good for everybody. You know, I think everybody after all the smoke and after Olin's tragic death and everything that happened, I think everybody just felt really bad about everything. Right. Including Vince, including Sean, everybody, And you know, I know I didn't feel very good about anything. I'm glad that, um, you know, that I was smart enough to realize that the best thing to do, I, after I wrote my book, I realized that I said everything I wanted to say and needed to say, and, you know, it didn't do any good to yeah, to have a chip, chip on my shoulder, and I think that's what I left everyone with after my book was that I was a bitter kind of resentful of uh, the business and general and stuff like that. And I, I thought I don't, I, I love the business and I love the guys in it. And I, I'm very grateful for everything that uh, Vince did for me and uh, yeah. the chances what he took on me. He took chances on me to Bischoff and. Hogan and those guys never, never did with me. He's the guy that really was the only guy that ever gave me a chance. And I owe a lot to Vince. And I, and I'm, I feel bad about my own part in things in the sense I, I, I wouldn't change anything I did with that whole screw job stuff. But I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sorry that I let things get to that point too. I think I, I certainly, uh, threw my share of gas on the fire. And I think Sean had his problems then. And, yeah. You know, in the end, you know, I, I remember Sean, once upon a time, was a, was a really good friend of mine. And I think that's what made me think about kind of burying bury the Hatchet was, you know, maybe we can make friends like I used to be with him. And, uh, you know what? Sean and I are good friends today.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, and even Vince, you know, we stay in touch and I'm on good terms with uh, WWE. If they need me, I'm happy to be a, a sort of uh A legend or icon for them and I'm grateful for everything they did for me and I just hope that it stays
1: that way well and it's good too because I remember you know even I think we had a show in Calgary back in uh I think it was 2001 or something like that, and I mentioned, you know, you should call Brett, and Vince was like, you know, I miss Brett. I miss him. I miss him. So, it's good that you guys kind of, you know, came to terms and, 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 you know, became friends again, because you guys deserved it, and also on your end, I always thought you deserved a little bit of a, of a better send-off in the WWE, and, and, and now, like you said, you, you've kind of gotten that, and you still re- receive the great reactions whenever you're on the show, and and I think that's a good way for you to get the closure from all that, and to get some of the, the reactions that you deserve.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we had a, you know, a falling out at the end, which was, in a lot of ways took a few minutes to happen, a few hours, maybe a few days. Right. And other than that, we had, we had a great. Uh, Vince was like a father to me in a lot of ways, and you know, I'm grateful for everything he ever did for me. And I, when I look back on my life now. I, you know, I, I don't really. Um, you know, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe it's the same for you, but so many countries, so many characters that I got to meet and so many great moments. You know, the wrestling, the television moments and the wrestling moments and the pay-per-view moments are one thing, but, you know, the little things in the dressing room, the conversations you have with, with you know, your peers and guys that you respect. And, yeah. Well, my whole life was wrestling and uh, I'm glad I kind of made peace with... Uh,
1: no, absolutely. It, it, it's
2: been good for my soul.
1: One last question. If you had to pick one match, gun to your head, what's your favorite match that you ever had on this day today, one that pops in your head?
2: My favorite match that pops into my head would be kind of my kid in a ladder match in Regina, Saskatchewan, for Stampede Wrestling,
3: wow. probably about 1981-1982. Wow.
2: Um, Tour of the house. And if you ever if you ever met a wrestler named Adrian Street, you could ask him about it. Because I remember Adrian Street would get tears in his eyes talking to me. He goes, that was the most greatest match I've ever watched. Wow. And that was the ladder match that I kept trying to sell Vince on. To do a ladder match. When Scott Hall and uh, Sean stole the idea for me at WrestleMania 10, it was like... <laughs> uh, which they did. You know, I, I went to Vince and I said, I got this idea for a ladder match. I said, but I got you to promise me that you'll never... Uh, do with anyone else. (laughs) Of course, okay. He said, show me what show me what it is. And I said, Okay, I'll he goes pick a wrestler and I said, Okay, I'll pick Sean. So I picked Sean, showed him the match and I came back and Vince goes, I missed it. I didn't see it. And then of course I was from in Sean if we wrestled at SummerSlam, which we never did. And uh anyway, Sean stole the idea from me at WrestleMania (laughs) 10. And uh I don't know if I've forgiven
1: him for that. <laughs> that that's the big problem. <laughs> Brett, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. It's been awesome talking to you. So many great stories. And once again, like I said, you've always been a, a hero of mine, and it's great to, to get a chance to talk to you uh, one-on-one for once. Well,
2: Chris, I, you know, I miss talking to you in the dressing rooms. And uh, anytime you want to do this again, just let me know. It's fun to catching
1: up. To you. Thanks a lot, Brett. Appreciate it, man. We'll, we'll talk to you soon.
2: Okay, take care, buddy.
1: Thanks so much to Bret Hart. Amazing conversation. I'm still going to answer one of your questions. Thanks for tweeting them and using the hashtag TIJ questions. But before I answer the question, just let me say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for clicking that Amazon banner every time you do any shopping. It helps me help you keep this show a rolling. The show, rolling the show kept it rolling all night long. 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 Just go to podcast1.com, click on talk is Jericho and hit the Amazon banner. Listen, it's not gonna cost you anything more. There's no hidden fees or anything. Just every time you buy something on Amazon using my banner, You access Amazon through Talk is Jericho. Amazon kicks back some money to this show. That's how we can keep it running. I have some hauls here so that my throat doesn't get sore. Hauls cost money, people. I got to pay for these hauls. The best way to do that is if you click on Amazon, I can buy hauls. Maybe I can even buy hauls on Amazon. I can click on Amazon myself. If you can buy a house on Amazon, do it. But do it through the Talk is Jericho link. Go to podcastone.com, click on Talk is Jericho show page, and use my Amazon link. Very simple, people. Love it. All right. Here is the question for the week. At That Miguel Lopez from Chicago asks, were you ever starstruck by any musicians that you have met? Yes. Starstruck by James Hetfield. I wrote about this in my third book, which we talked about last week. I met James for the first time in Chicago, incidentally, home of that Miguel Lopez. Backstage after his show... And I was so scared to meet him and I went up to him just like total fanboy. Thank you, James, for, for all, all the music and I just love your lyrics and I, I just think you're the best. And, and, and. and James was just kind of looking at me. I remember he was wearing like, this big giant hunting parka. <laughs> and he's like, oh, thanks, man. No problem. My pleasure. And I was like, oh, thank you so much, James, for for everything you've done. And can I take a picture with you? And I took a picture with James. And then afterwards, I had to literally walk into the corner of the room and balance myself so i wouldn't pass out i felt like i was gonna cry I was like, oh my god i just met james Hetfield. oh my god i just met james headfield oh my god i just met james headfield it's like I it was so blubbering fanboy second time i met him third time i met him fourth time i met him and now i still am kind of intimidated by him but at least i can have a conversation with him without acting like a dummy i saw him at the metallica 30 year anniversary and And he had lost a bunch of weight. And I asked him, what did you do? And he said, the caveman diet. Asked him what the caveman diet was. I then went on the caveman diet and lost about another 15 pounds. Remember when I came back in 2012 after the uh, end of the world as we know it promos and I was super ripped? That was because of the caveman diet and because of James Hetfield. So thanks to James Hetfield for helping me through my childhood and helping me not go through my adulthood as a fat bastard. (laughs) Uh, thank you so much to you for listening to Talk is Jericho. Great, great time hanging out with you guys. Such a blast. Thank you so much for enjoying the show. Keep on listening, keep on dancing, stay cool, stay hard, stay hungry. God bless you guys. We will see you next week right here in Podcast1.com or iTunes for another fun-filled, tasty edition of Talk is Jericho. Who loves you, baby?
0: Thanks for listening to Talk is Jericho. Don't forget, every Wednesday there's a brand new episode of Talk is Jericho at PodcastOne.com.